it about the weather? A podcast where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to delve back into weather that may or may not have changed history. And I said I was going to do it sooner or later, and I, well, we're going to go with the sooner rather than the later. But before we jump into the main topic, let's take a moment, as always, to pause and Think about the weather around us. It's been a very, very busy week, tropical weather-wise. And as most of you know, who've listened to the podcast at all, that's kind of where my original work in the field was, was with hurricanes, tropical cyclones. And we've had a few over in my neck of the woods. Had one in the Atlantic early for the year. And I know they're forecasting a potentially active season or more active than normal season we'll see how that plays out those seasonal forecasts still still tricky at times of course but probably more i don't know newsworthy was the major tropical cyclone that was in the indian ocean made landfall uh, thankfully it sounds like they had good evacuation plans in place and hopefully that minimized impact on loss of life but it's it's in a region that unfortunately uh, tends to suffer when these sort of events take place. So I, I hope that you know we're already dealing with enough challenges as it is that these locations are able to recover quickly uh, from what I'm sure is a devastating event. But this week also, from a weather standpoint, I, I'm in that change season, right, where you're, you know, one minute you're, you, you put on like a, a long sleeve I don't know, a little fleece or, you know, a light jacket or something. And 30 minutes later, you take it off. And then 30 minutes later, you put it on. And 30 minutes later, you take it off. It, it drives me crazy, but it made me wonder. We've talked about weather and moods before, right, and the psychological impact of weather. But I, it made me wonder, do we actually crave a certain weather? Do we have, you know, you've heard me mention I love snow, right? It, and But I don't know that I crave it. I like it. I enjoy it. But it made me think that maybe physically we truly actually crave a certain type of weather. You know, that's that that perfect temperature in our body. That's just like, yeah, a, a degree or two either way. We, Our body just adjusts naturally. But when we get just outside that sort of zone, it drives us the equally the other way. It drives us a little batty. Ah, maybe something for a future topic. I like the whole idea of the psychology of weather, if you will. But I don't know, you know, how much that, that holds or if there's enough research even to explore. But again, I'll keep it in mind for a future topic, see if it's something that just might be worth diving into. But for now, for now, let's get back to our topic of weather and history. Or did weather change history? And this week we're going to be talking about did weather give us the Goodyear blimp? I'm going to date myself right there. Goodyear blimp. Do you even know what it is? I mean, that's kind of where I got to start. So this will help define you in where you, what age bracket you probably fall in based on what you know about the Goodyear blimp. Or I could even say Snoopy one. You know, we, we can throw a couple of them out there. Because it probably defined a couple of things. One is, are you into sports? But two, this was a mainstay in many sporting events, and many high-profile sporting events for many years. So it's just the Goodyear blimp, right? Those who don't know it, 
Well, like I said, maybe you know Snoopy one equally from sporting events. But if you didn't pay attention to sporting events at all, you may not know what these are. But hopefully most everybody knows what a blimp is, right? And the Goodyear blimp was a staple at many sporting events for, I, I, don't, I don't know what the time window was. This I didn't look up, right? But let's say it was 20 to 30 years where this big blimp would go to sporting events and had advertisements on the side. But it'd come to town, right? That was the big thing. It'd fly around the U.S. and it would show up at, at these different events, particularly open-air venues. So it was more popular, and that was always the funny thing. I never understood it why it went to, like, New Orleans when things were played in an indoor stadium. And the same thing with the, the MetLife blimp or the Snoopy one or whatever that, that would follow on. I never understood it in those cases. But, it, you know, it's kind of an advertising sort of thing. But back in the day, it had these big billboards that were just a bunch of, you know, think about it being a big LED screen that would show something on the side of the blimp and then rotate to something else. But it also provide video footage, you know, shot from the sky. So it provided a different camber angle from the event, kind of a neat thing. And again, it was kind of a big deal when the, the blimp came to town for any one of these events. And I even remember I had a little model Goodyear blimp and the LED screen, you know, had a very limited amount of things it could show, but it could show a few little things. It's kind of a neat thing. But long before we had the Goodyear blimp, there were blimps used in air travel, right? They were called air, and, you, and again, you may know these by different names. Might be an airship, might be a dirigible, might just be a blip, right? I grew up knowing it as a blip, but it's taken these other names. But it was a much more common form of travel until a famous day in 1937 when a blip from Germany called the Hindenburg would go up in flames as it was coming to land in New Jersey. But let's talk about what this thing was. So it's 800 plus feet, a little over 800, pretty big thing. Probably the biggest thing that's flown with passengers, I think. You know, I'm not saying the biggest plane that's ever flown, but kind of a passenger-bearing device. And it was common, so mid to late 30s, 1930s, it was at a time when air travel still was not really viable from long points over the Atlantic yet. You could do it. You could kind of puddle jump from an island to an island and make your way across the Atlantic, but that's not something that people wanted to do. And what I was really surprised about when I looked into it was this: these blimps took only about Two and a half days. Now, you know, again, by today's standards, that may seem like a long time. But your other option back then was taking a boat, right? Which could still, even even the faster methods, would generally take a week to cross the Atlantic. Let's say to go from Europe to the United States. But, but they didn't come without challenges. So most of them were filled with hydrogen, Right? And they were filled with hydrogen to essentially make them lighter than air, than the air around them, right? So it made it very easy for it to float. But again, floating thing, across the, it could, could make good speeds. I don't know that they had really high capacity for when you think about the size of the thing, but it could hold, you know, with, with crew and 
passengers, let's let's say uh, you know 100 people are in that range. I, I didn't see if there was a set you know amount that they that they carried, but, but you know something I guess that made it worthwhile for the companies that flew them to fly them. So why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this event and what has it got to do in the world with weather? Well. These blimps, there were a couple of them. There was this one in a sister ship that, like I said, flew out of Germany and were making some of their first flights to and from the United States across the Atlantic. And this was the first of many that were going to go to this location in New Jersey. I can't see it from where I'm sitting. Eh, the horizon bends a little bit much, but let's say it, it's really pretty close. It's less than, you know, 70 miles from where I am. But as it was coming in, main approach, not surprisingly, there was some weather in the area. Actually, there was quite a few storms in the area. It was early May, so not surprising. But that had delayed its landing. Some very high winds, storms in the area, storms that included lightning, although they weren't necessarily what you would call highly active lightning storms, but certainly contained lightning. And as the blimp was coming in for its landing, now essentially what a blimp would do is it would steer itself to where it kind of needed to be and would drop these big guidelines from the blimp and they would get attached to either I mean, theoretically, I guess people could pull them down, but they get attached to winches and it would bring the blimp down towards the ground so that the people could get off. But you can also imagine the more wind there is, it's harder to line these things up. And that was always one of the challenges with these devices is they were a little, I don't know, sensitive to winds not in the direction that the blimp needed to go. But as it was coming in for this landing and the mooring lines had been attached to the ground, all of a sudden there were signs of an explosion and a massive fire and this thing would go up in flames. And there's famous kind of pictures capturing this event. There's not good video though of the event itself or as this took place so that we don't really know precisely what happened, right? I did mention hydrogen. Anybody who knows a little about this kind of stuff knows that hydrogen is, well, it's highly explosive and flammable. So I've set the background. There's weather going on, storms going on. The storm certainly delayed the landing. And what everyone does agree on is the setup was such that the makeup of the skin of the airship or the blimp or the dirigible, whatever you want to call it, would take on a charge, not unlike we do when it's, when it's, I mean, wintertime and it's kind of a dry air and you go and you get charged up, static electricity, and you go and you touch that metal handle on something and it shocks you. So the skin of the ship, this, this big 800 foot plus thing, eh, think of it as being highly charged as it was going in for its landing, Right. But that's where the clarity stops. And to this day, no matter which story, it, it, I'll put a couple of different stories in the show notes about good write-ups. I found a few, a few that were more kind of, yeah, it's just looked like the article peeled it from somewhere else. It really didn't, 
explain it well, but a few that kind of dug into it and talked about the potential of what went wrong. So some of it said sabotage. You got to remember, this is leading up. We're not quite there yet to World War II, but the changes that are happening in Germany were certainly underway. So you got this sabotage kind of conspiracy spy theory going going on. You got just plain up mechanical failure. Something happened that there was a hydrogen leak. I read some stories that say there was definitively a hydrogen leak. Others that say they don't think there was. So I don't think even that's clear. I did find an interesting tidbit is they would put garlic in the hydrogen so that it would be obvious if there was a leak and you could track down where the source was. And I found that interesting mostly because it's a reminder of how stinky garlic is. I know garlic's good in food, but just a reminder that, you know, if someone doesn't want to be around you after you've had garlic, that's probably why. It's a good leak detector. There was talk about it being shot down, literally from, I even read something about with an arrow. But, you know, feasible, it's only a couple hundred feet off the ground. You could have. It could have taken a bullet or something else that could have caused an explosion. Or, or, of course, one of the main theories is it was the weather, right? Most precisely that a lightning strike made a connection with the, with the blimp and caused this explosion. Now, bunch of possibilities, right? All of them, well, not all of them, a lot of them viable as to something that could have played a role. But as it has been dug into, there, there are a few things going on that could have played a role. But let's summarize the weather situation again. Clearly, the weather was not good. Storms in the area with lightning. And I think it's important to remember that even though the storms had cleared so this blimp could come in for a landing, that as all of you know that have listened to me before, lightning doesn't necessarily always strike right at the storm. Matter of fact, some of the best Images that we get of lightning are the strikes far away from the storm because you can actually see them, and that's why they show up well in photography. They're not in the middle of some massively difficult-to-see cloud structure. They're well-removed and can be tens to 100 miles away. I don't, I don't remember what the record is. I know I've mentioned it before, but it's a good distance from where the actual storm center is. But no matter what, as I've said, weather played a role in the landing time, right? Now, did it bring it down? Did something like lightning, which would be the weather event, the winds certainly manipulated the blimp for a while, kept it from landing for a couple of hours, but was directly a weather event such as a lightning strike? Because other than that, it probably wouldn't have been a direct thing that caused it well, the evidence is really unclear. You know me. I, I don't like that. I like to know. But it's probabilities, right? We don't always get a firm answer. Because people have dug into what was the surface of the blimp made of? What, was, what did the interior structure look like? And they've also explored what the explosion itself actually looked like. So visually what people are saying is it had more of an, of an arc lighting scenario, which led more to less likely looking like a lightning strike. 
But there's also speculation that this the way it developed was not a, a one big explosion, so it wasn't necessarily like a hydrogen tank or a firm lightning strike, but it was is, if as if the fire itself had kind of a multiple start point. But what was unclear was did a lightning strike hit it? And it remains unclear, unfortunately. What we do know is this blimp, amongst others, and many in the time, were hit by lightning. And they didn't seem to go down because of it. So there probably was something more to play. Even if lightning, even if lightning somehow triggered an event, there was probably more to it than lightning itself, that there was a mechanical issue involved. There's also speculation that when these guide wires were dropped to the ground, as this thing was built up, right, with all this charge on the skin of the airship, that that release as the cables came to the ground, well, again, was like when you touch that, that knob. So you could argue that weather again, created the conditions for it to get a, a high charge. Other people would say that those cables didn't conduct electricity. And as we know, right, there's certain things that if you walk up and you touch a, a wooden doorknob, you don't get that discharge. But others have said that specifically those airships would, this wouldn't have been the first time, would be prone to getting this kind of charge on them and that the mooring lines precisely did achieve that, that they provided an avenue to release that charge. That seems a little unsafe to me. Maybe you're not supposed to catch the thing, maybe if they do touch the ground. But what I find interesting, and this is always the case with this kind of stuff for me, is it depends which expert you talk to. Everybody's trying to convince you of their method, right? That well, the discharge wouldn't have happened that way. Well, the discharge would have needed to happen some way. I don't know how it, you know, if these things are charged at some point, it's got to release. Or lightning could have hit it, and just because lightning doesn't always cause a failure doesn't mean it didn't play a major role in this case. But what is unclear to this day is the precise knowledge of what the final pieces were that caused the failure. But what I will say is, it seems pretty clear to me that whether, whether it was the precise final moment or just what created the environment for the event to take place, there's a really good chance it played a role. Or mentally, those around the event walked away with the belief that weather played a role. And sometimes, even if it doesn't, the evidence doesn't support it directly, by the time the evidence, which we still don't firmly know, would change our understanding of the story, it might be too late. And I think that that's probably the case here. Now, let's be clear. Airplanes were becoming a much bigger mode of transportation. Airplanes were probably going to take over anyways. Could hold more people, were faster, no matter how you slice it. So it's very, very feasible and likely that 
this event hasten the end of this method of air travel? May not have been immediate. And it may have ha- going was going to happen anyways. But whether weather caused weather weather, I like that. Whether weather caused the precise ending of this airship on that day, between the belief that it did and the buildup to the event that created the scenario for it to happen, weather was certainly involved. And you may ask, why did I title this idea, Did Weather Give Us the Goodyear Blip? Well, I guess in my mind, what it did is it relegated airships to more of a novelty item, more of something we don't see often. And maybe that wouldn't have happened had the demise or the onset or the hastening of the end of airship travel taken place when it did. I don't know. Maybe that's more of a stretch. Any case, it's kind of a neat. Apparently, the Weather Channel back in the day had a, a series about weather and history events, and this was one they covered. I didn't watch the episode yet, but maybe I'll dig that up and see what they found out. Any case, there's a couple there's a couple things in the show notes, so take a listen. I don't know. Let me know what you think. It's hard to say that this was as meaningful as some of the others that we've covered, but fundamentally, it, if it brought about a change of a major mode of transportation, and that would be the arguable thing. It's, I didn't see where there were so many people traveling this way, but it was kind of a, it was kind of like taking a cruise ship, if you will. You know, it was kind of a, they would call them a hotel in the sky because, you know, you have people on board for a couple of days. It's kind of an interesting idea. Now, as you heard, this was the first time of getting, kind of getting back into this, did weather change history, and, I, and I've got some ideas for future episodes. But for those of you who are newer to the podcast or haven't heard them all, I'm also putting in the show notes links to the past episodes. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One is it's, it's kind of a, a nice rebuffer of the six plus episodes or so that historically I looked at these kind of events. But because the website changed somewhat while the podcast was on hiatus, the links are updated specifically to cover this. So it kind of goes to the new place where no matter what I do with the website, the storage of these files, hopefully it's going to stay in the same location going forward. So take a look. If you want to listen to some of the past episodes, you can certainly do that. But for now, as I head into a holiday weekend here in the United States, and I think even in Europe this past day or two there was a holiday there and some people are trying to stretch in a long weekend as we all try again to relax a little with everything going on around us hopefully hopefully your weather right can find its way into your life and maybe give you a distraction for a while something new to think about something new to explore because as we all know There's much more to weather than the weather itself.